Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It's August 30th, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 504. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Yo. Renata Price. Howdy. And Emmanuel Myberg. Hey. So we're all gathered here uh, in the New York office for a change. We're getting ready for a stream. We're going to be doing, well, the day this episode comes out. Uh, so we are recording from what used to be Lobby One and is now a podcast uh, like recording studio. And so it's very unusual to all be in the room uh, together. So I think to start us off in terms of like major releases, probably the big one this week is Immortality, um, the new Sam Barlow game that... Okay, if you're a Waypoint listener, you know, for the sake of <laughs> full disclosure, it was produced by our colleague and friend, Natalie Watson. Uh, and we're going to talk about it in more detail like later on after it's come out as more folks have a chance to play it. Uh, but I, I think we're all loath to rob people of any of the fun uh, that they'll have from the game's reveals. So I think we'll keep this, this pretty top level. So Immortality, uh, I am curious how... How quickly did y'all parse what the game is doing? Because it introduces this this notion of you are going through the archives of three unreleased pictures uh, starring uh, Marissa Marcel. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a mystery of, like, why did none of these pictures ever come out? What 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 happened here? Uh, but if you if you come into this expecting it to be something along the lines of uh, telling lies or her story, this, like... The way you parse footage and scenes in this game, like, on that way, like, yes, the fact you were doing that sort of parsing is similar to those games, but I'm I'm curious how much you were thrown by what it turns out Immortality is doing. So, I mean, the thing for me is that the the game opens and it's like, it does like a quick tutorial and it like establishes its premise, right? And it gives you all of these scenes, like, pick your first thing that you want to look at. And I'm like, oh, cool, great. I see this big board of things that I could theoretically look at. There's so much here. And then I click on one of them, and the game is like, great. That's your starting off point. Everything else is gone. I thought I'd fucked up. I thought I had <laughs> fucked something up. I, and I, I thought I like, couldn't get back to the right menu. Yes, like, yes. Am I far out enough? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely had the, like... uh where did it? You know the. You remember the little viral video of the raccoon trying to clean its uh, oh cotton candy yeah, yeah, water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that was yes, me yes, at the yes. start of immortality. Right, and so it feels like a process of reconstruction in a yeah. way that I like. Re- so you start with the full picture that you cannot even because you do not know the details, you cannot even understand the full picture that you're looking at, and then begin like this process of reconstruction that I find really engaging, uh, and I think that like technically and like mechanically, really, really neat. Yeah. Um, quickly about the tutorial, I thought it was interesting that 
the game helpfully says, oh, what you're doing is you're looking at this through a moviola. And it's like, do you know what that is? Have either of you used a moviola? Or have you ever encountered no, it? Do no, you know what that no, do you know no. what it means? Like do you never did that type of editing. Yeah. So yeah. I just thought it was funny because it's like, oh you're you know what this is. This is the moviola. <laughs> Everyone and knows everybody movie. knows what that is. And I, I happen to know I went to like a very avant garde film program in school and in college and their whole thing was um yes, movies are getting digitized and you're all using you know, software to edit your movies and you're shooting on digital. But our perspective on it is um, a painter gets dirty with paint and he knows what paint smells like. And if you're doing sculpture, then like the dust gets on you and it's like you have to know the material of film. So hell yeah. For for the first (laughs) year, they're like the first class you show up and they just give you a roll of Super 8 and they're like, what is film? Film is a, a, a ribbon of plastic that has this acetate on it. You expose that to light. You process it chemically. It removes the acetate. And that's, that's, why, that's the product. That's what you see. And they're like, in order for you to fully understand this process, you're going to make your first film without a camera. And it's just like you get the roll of Super 8 and you have to like either scrape off the acetate or... Um, expose it by hand or mm. do whatever you will. And then you go into this room and you edit it on a moviola, which is you put your film on one reel and then it feeds into like a mini projector with a screen and then it feeds into another reel and you have your hands on like two levers where you're pulling the film back and forth through this projector, this tiny little projector. And I've done that for hours and hours. Um, to make my little stupid film. So I felt very at home, but it's an arcane process. Um, well, and, and I think that sort of gets at something which I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of people can get stuff out of this game. That's true. But I also feel very much like this is the most, and this one's for all the cineasts out there. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, it is. <laughs> do you love? 100%. Do you love old mo- modes of filmmaking and different eras of uh, like genre picture? Well, here here is the love letter to all of that. Mm-hmm. And like I like just from what you're doing in this in this game, which is revisiting the three unreleased pictures of Marissa Marcel, which have the takes. But then also the action around the takes. Mm -hmm. Table Uh, reads, location scouting. um, Right. Uh, It's it's about the picture behind the picture uh, regarding the production of these these three movies. And it is so much a thing about, like, different periods of filmmaking history and different, Mm -hmm. like, style. Not just styles of film, but... Entire ways of like conceptualizing, conceptualizing and defining the connection between the artists and their work, how mm-hmm. they related to it, how they related to each other. Uh, I'm curious, has anyone in this room, uh, and I think we've all played the game to, to varying degrees, um, has anyone finished the full runtime of any one of these films yet? Fully I, assembled? I I hit credits, oh, on, the, hit credits. On, on the game, and no no to cuz it's it's hard it's hard to say right. uh, i don't i, I don't want to reveal too much but it's hard how would you know 
right. if you've watched the whole movie. Right. If you don't, yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was, I was just curious because I'm, I, I think it's it, the scale of production here. I do find really fascinating uh, because the volume of clips and takes you are working with is pretty astounding. So, n- not not to like um, be be like overly kind to Natalie. I'll say mean things about the game soon, <laughs> but it's it's one of the most astounding things about it is how. It would have been easy to say, well, this is a game about filmmaking and there's movies within the game and everybody understands that really this is a game and not a movie. So it's like if the quality on this is not quite right or if it doesn't like if it's not true to the era or if it's not, it doesn't feel authentic, um, then everybody will kind of forgive it. And I think they would. But um, this first movie, for example, can we talk about Ambrosio? Ambrosio. Yeah. It's just like it's so specific. It's like this. 70s, like le- late 60s, 70s, exploitation, uh, sexy thriller period piece shot in <laughs> Italy with a with a with an American crew, and it's just everything about it is so specific and feels so real and good, and like the cinematography is good, and like the production feels period appropriate and all that, and that all that stuff is so so impressive. Um, just like and 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 they and they do it three times, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. there's three movies, um, so I, I find that kind of mind blowing uh, how well executed those movies are. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the strengths um, of all of the productions uh, is how deeply uncomfortable all of them feel and yeah. uncomfortable in unique ways, right? You're talking about the period appropriate like filmmaking, like both techniques, but also like culture on set and the ways in which each film feels so uniquely unsettling to watch it be produced and the particular relationships that the film sent that each film's production centers on are really, really fascinating and feel like in direct conversation with not only the like film as text, but also the era in which it's produced in a way that I find like really exciting. Yeah, the um if the films didn't look credible, I think the game might still work, but not nearly as well. Mm-hmm. Like I think we've all seen versions of like the the picture within the picture thing is a, a very familiar conceit. We've all seen but like it is often very hard to have something nested inside the work that also is convincing as a work in itself, right? Um, You know, a standard example, I think, is one of the many issues that people had with, uh, let's say, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is Aaron Sorkin's, like, thing about SNL, basically. He's not a comedy writer, and he didn't know, he didn't work with enough comedy writers, and so when you see the show they're all producing, it's just not remotely convincing as mm-hmm. like a weekly comedy sketch show it just doesn't it, it like if for all that they dress the set for all that they like make it look like the production is real it doesn't look right and never like it always feels a bit false because of that and i think that so much of the magic of immortality depends on this idea that you are sort of peering through this keyhole at this weird corner of film history that actually happened, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the conceit here is that all this is real and that, like, there's just a mystery of, like, why this this actress's three films just all disappeared under weird circumstances. Part of what makes it feel so interesting to be peering through that keyhole is that what you see looks like 
a convincing and pretty like pretty good film. I want to watch type. that movie. I would watch <laughs> that movie. I would enjoy that movie. It's so weird and and um, horny and inappropriate <laughs> and uh, Ambrosia. You mean? Yes. Ambrosia. It's yeah. it's, it, oh, it's so fucking weird. It well and and I think something else there is um, like for me one of the things that like probably my favorite part of this was just sort of unpacking everything that happened around the second film which is Minsky so the the first film is this yeah the, this weird like art house exploitation uh, film from like the late 60s early 70s and then Minsky is like a 70s gritty like crime drama mm. um, but it's about sexy artists and the intersection of um, you know the straight laced world of a of the cops and the police detective who's investigating this crime, uh, like in an artist community, and then the weird transgressive, uh, you know, sexually untethered, uh, like spirit of the time uh, in these circles. You know, it's all very uh, Warholian in mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But one of the things that, like that, first of all, like there's a few, maybe especially that one. There are moments where you see full long takes from that film, mm-hmm. and you're like, "That's a finished film." Like if they just if they just made Min- like you know what I mean? Like you like yeah. Minsky's a like Minsky works that like, the parts that are done in that movie. It's like, yep, that would have been a perfectly decent and interesting like genre crime film. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a classic, but like a <laughs> but 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 an interesting one. I think one of the things that really started to, to intrigue me about that is early on, you know, looming over it is something really terrible happens yeah. with that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't take you long to sort of suspect like what that might be, but I think one of the things that makes this a really interesting game but also like an uncomfortable one is that this is about like unethical acts of creation. Yeah. Um like it like watching Minsky it is striking the degree to which like uh, okay. What's the what's the kid's name? Uh, the 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 guy. The detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. detective. Yeah, yeah. The actor or the yeah. or the character. Uh, the character. Oh. Uh, the, ca- the character. Well, I guess I guess he's the actor and the the, the, the they actor. They use his last name, yeah. right? I think the the character actually takes on his last name. Goodman, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like it is early on. You're st- like it's sort of. I go in anticipating that partly the character of Marissa at the center of this is an ingenue who ends up being exploited right. and like put in dangerous situations by like the like men around her mm. and such. Mm. And there's a bit of that, but as you're watching Minsky, she starts to emerge much more as like a creative leader in her own right, also pushing boundaries in weird directions. And it gets increasingly uncomfortable watching the dynamics just on that set as normies encounter them. Right. I think that that's... What is the... F- so I'm actually really curious, um, without, like, getting into details, the first thing I saw of, of that second film wasn't the film. The first thing I saw was a party uh, between all of the cast members in which there was a... Yeah, Kata? Is that not the film? Because I lost the plot there. That's I, not the film. That's not the that film. Is, that is a cast party. This is what I was wondering, because she's still in the fucking, like, in enough mm-hmm. get-up that I was like, is that, 
and like she's in the getup and she's pushing on the char- on the right. human person in the same way the character, the, the character pushes would, on him. Which I yeah. And, and and that is like it's a deeply uncomfortable scene. That was the first time I was exposed to that, and I was like, this all feels so weird because you have all of these like fucking gay freaks in this room, and then like Carl Hollywood- Greenwood, Carl, Carl Greenwood, Greenwood. Played by Ty Malbach, who uh, Man Engage plays uh, Marissa, and Ty Malbach plays Carl and I think like there's great performances throughout this but like Carl's Midwestern discomfort with all of this is so palpable and like I have such sympathy for that character in ways but also like I'm so impatient with him. I'm worried about him, but also I want to slap him upside the fucking head. Again, that's my my first introduction to the character is a scene in which his Midwestern discomfort is not being applied to a situation within which he is like being put in a in an awkward position. Uh, It 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 is to some degree, but it's mostly put on him saying weird shit about who women get to sleep with. And so that is my introduction to the character. And then to see that character engaged with and developed over time into someone who I kind of feel bad for and want to protect as much as I think he's kind of a fucking clunge who would call me a slur is, I think, a really really well done uh, character and kind of arc throughout the the game that I find like really impressive. So you you mentioned performances and I wonder what you all think about the level of acting in this and but before that I think we should acknowledge that like the task of acting in this is monumental. It just <laughs> it is so I mean you're talking about it took me 6 hours to hit credits. Maybe I left it idle for a bit. So maybe 5. So it's like there's at least five hours of video. It's uh, a handful of people, and it's extremely layered. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's you're acting the actor, and then the actor is acting the role, and then, y- you know, you're, you're conveying what is happening in the scene, but also what is the, what is the dynamic between the actors in the scene, and then there there are other layers to this that we we don't want to get into. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so it's an it's for any movie for any actor on any level this would be a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. And I think that the smaller roles are overall better because they have less to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's less yep. demanding. But for Marissa, I, I think, I mean. I think she wasn't up to the task, but it's not because she's not a good actor. It's because the task is impossible. Um, yeah. I also think that a thing that helps me with this is the diegetic presence of the camera. Uh, so this is not like you are watching uh, clips that do not emerge from a film in like the way we traditionally like watch a film, and which like is often like a th- uh, perspective that is like divorced from. Uh, the the narrative itself, right? Um, these are cameras held by people in specific situations, and I think that does a lot to help some of the oddness of certain performances is because you know the person is aware that they are being perceived both as an actor but also as a person. I think like one of the scenes that I felt kind of weird about early on was uh, was an early scene between uh, Greenwood and Marissa where they're meeting for the first time, and it felt like at times the characters were like slipping a little bit or like it wasn't all the way there 
And then the presence of the cameraman when they address that there is a camera watching these two people interact in what is like a deeply odd and intimate way immediately was like, oh, cool, I, I can I can now resuspend my disbelief. And I think that's part of the strength of the game's like form and structure is that even when performers are struggling with like an, as you say, impossible task, you are able to, through the structure of the game itself, reestablish and like reinforce your like ability to understand what is happening is like real and genuine. Yeah, I think um, I don't know. For me, I think the performance worked very well. Um, I think part like with the caveat that there was still kind of a question for me is like Marissa is a hard character to know. And part of it is we see her three very different moments in her career, and each is like sort of shaped by previous moments and and that and all that. Uh, but in terms, like for me, it it tended to work very very well. Like I became utterly bought, like I was utterly bought in to like the saga of this weird like cursed collaboration between like director John Durek and his muse um, Marissa Marcel. Like it was like completely like unraveling this history like and the different uh, approaches them each ta- each of them takes uh the different the different modes they they operate in as both their creative tastes and objectives change but also their like goals and motivations toward their work and toward each other change mm-hmm. uh like i thought all of this it, i think this is partly why it is such an uncomfortable film like film uh, game, it is this voyeuristic look at a really to- a really toxic creative environment mm. that is defined by this like unhealthy fascination between the two creative leads at the center of it, mm-hmm. and and everyone else is long for this ride and you're just sort of like again staring into the editing into the editing bay mm. being like this this doesn't feel like everyone needs to get out everyone needs to like <laughs> does, does yeah. anyone am i the only one who sees how fucking weird this well, shoot it's, is it's yeah. not a long for the ride the ride is happening to yeah. them like that is and that feeling of of the film happening to people is yeah. i think per- pervasive throughout because i think one of the things you mentioned is like uh, and Minsky, for example, right? You see a long take and you're like, wow, that just feels like a, a, that could be a movie. Yeah. Exactly, right? But then the camera often holds for 15 extra seconds or five extra seconds and you see the people step away from the scene or step into the scene if you are if you rewind at the beginning of a given clip, right? And the weight of that and like the emotional energy carried into the scene itself and carried from it i think are one of like the strengths of the of the performances is like watching these people try to resettle back into themselves after leaving a character well i think i think this is one of like maybe one of the central examinations of the game and makes it such a compelling and, and tough watch is I've barely done any acting, so it's not really a, a creative mode that I know much about. But like one of the things that really comes through here is this question of like, where does the character come from? Where does the energy and life right. you imbue it with come from? And one of the things that like in seeing all this that comes through is like when it's time, like like in some of these things, when it's time to have like a sexy, intimate like conversation between like two lovers in a bed. 
you have to enter that mode and be incredibly vulnerable around a set full of people right. and like do that scene. And by the way, it might be a shitty day on the shoot. It might be a shitty day on mm-hmm. set or things are or things are just fucked up with the production. Still got to go do it. And then they yell cut and you've got to like leave a bunch of that behind. And seeing them go through the process again and again, it like this film does a great job of showing, I think, just how what an act of consumption mm-hmm. that like screen acting can be. And it's it's very much I think that's very intentional. And one way I felt that is that I mean, when you have behind this when you have movies about movies, a big element of it is fame and fortune and celebrity. And I don't feel like that's really important here. Mm-mm. No. It's just about the work. And the works that we're looking at, they're minor works, right? Like, none of these films are, like, Oscar-winning films or blockbusters or anything. They're, like, this weird, is, crappy this is films. VHS rack. Yeah. That, like, maybe some of it even is behind the curtain. Right. right? Where it's, like, <laughs> Red Shoe Diary type shit, maybe. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought the first one, I was like, oh, is this, like, a deep throat thing? Is, okay, are we, is this actually a point? It's, and it's not, but it's, like, it's, it's on that... <laughs> 70s thought, border. Go ahead. I thought more like El Topo was the thing that I was like something with religi- religiosity behind it that also has a lot of sexuality in it from that era. But like this is like El Topo made by a like B movie director <laughs> instead of fucking Jodorowsky, you know? Yeah. Well, and like, and to be fair, like one of the things that is in that in Ambrosio mm-hmm. is you realize like, oh, it's a great, great old Italian director, right? Mm. And here's Durek and Marissa being like, we could make it hornier. <laughs> and a big a big part of it is like the the power swinging away from like the old line like filmmaking guy into sort of more of a 70s mm-hmm. like new wave type mode but also it is about like breaking down a lot of the boundaries that accompany like a traditional film set and so by the time you get to Minsky it's all experimental and like method out the ass. So- yeah. So that's the thing I think about a lot, actually, is is the ways in which the film, because you were talking about acting as a craft, right? And the yeah. way the film understands acting as like a thing that people do and as like a as a emotional like process and like as a mode of labor, right? And one of the things I really love about uh, Minsky is that you have Marissa who is doing film as like a in a very method style of like building and constructing her life around the character who she is trying to embody, and then trying to enforce that particular vision on other characters who are completely divorced from it and have a totally different approach to acting as a, like, artistic form, right? Yep. And the discomfort that comes from her trying to shape those performances through a methodology that she understands and they do not is staggering. Well, and a methodology that itself I think is increasingly in disrepute. Yes. Right? Like, it is an embrace of a long trend in acting uh, that is increasingly like kind of rejected, both as like, does it result in better performances? Eh. I think like, the story there is that it's it's misunderstood. Like it's been told, it's been romanticized into like yeah. you have to become the monster, and the people who actually understand the method are like, that's not what it is. That's something that people right. m- kind of romanticize. Can I? I, I want to get another yeah. dig in on the game. Um, <laughs> I watched the premiere of the new Game of Thrones show, which is. You know, I mean, I don't like it, but it's probably like the biggest television event of the year. It's a huge, expensive show, special effects and all that. And it is brought to its knees by wigs. It's brought Mm -hmm. to its knees by bad wigs. And this game, 
has a lot of bad wigs. It's like if there's one single thing that took me out of the game, it's just like <laughs> these wigs are horrendous. And I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving the Game of Thrones comparison just to say it's like our wig tech is not there. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's just like if the if Game of Thrones can't do it, then I, I mean I forgive it. But that's that's like probably the the biggest flaw I had with the with the actual that was- movies. That was a big thing I noticed with fucking the first Hobbit movie when they did the like high, high like extra like high frame rate or whatever. All the wigs looked fake all of a sudden just because you have extra frames to look at and like that isn't hmm why does those furs around that person's shoulder look really weird? Yeah. <laughs> um I'm asking an Elliot question right now. <laughs> but uh, the right. wigs? No. Um I Yeah, go on. Um I just wanted to mention that I love how much this game makes me aware of editing, <laughs> which is very fun because there is none, right? Like you're getting full takes, uh, 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 just uh, completely uh, uncut, I guess is the word. Um, but uh, the like the way they include editing, obviously, right, is choosing where those takes end and what when you click on something. Uh, where it takes you. Have we actually said how the how that thing works? Not we really. haven't. Okay. So, so like, do it. Yeah. yeah. When you're when you're scrolling through and watching one of these film clips, uh, you hit a button to go into image mode. It basically pauses it, and then you can move a cursor around the screen, and s- certain things will uh, light up the the cursor, and then you can click on that, and that will take you to a new, a different. A piece of film, and at first it it's it's usually new, right? Because you haven't unlocked them all. Um, eventually, you do start clicking back, and like you'll end up back in a place where you've already been. Um, and one of the things that I that annoyed that has annoyed me about this game is that it does. I'm playing on controller, so this is maybe only a thing that you know certain people are gonna notice. But when you're scroll, when you're just watching it, the, the a clip, if there's something to click on, sometimes it will signal by rumbling. And I'm like, okay, oh, I don't. I hate that. I don't want that. <laughs> I, don't, I like. I you say I, sometimes. I, say yeah. it only happens sometimes. Yes, because then if I keep, I'm like, fuck it. I'm gonna keep going. I'll go back and I'll like watch from the beginning again. Be like, okay, where was that spot where it was like, hey, pay attention. It doesn't happen a second time. <laughs> it only happens the first. Wait. Ren and I are making eye contact <laughs> because we know something. Hey, hey, hold on, um, Kato. Has there been some weird shit that's happened in the game? Oh yeah, I'm not talking about. That. Okay, so it's not I'm, the rumble is not cueing that there's. It like does a weird also shit. cue that. Okay, but I, that's I, different. I would say there there are different cues. Yes, there, there's 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 a few categories of. Yeah, there's a few categories. That's my that's yeah. my yeah. So there is still this is still just it wants you to stop and pick something on the screen. One of the yeah. like I'll just I'll just say this too. I think one of the things that makes it really clever is that one of the fun things about this is figuring out like what meaning does the parser assign to the thing you're clicking because right. it's sometimes not what you right. think it's, it's yeah. associative in a way that I find re- I mean it is associative in the way that like film cuts are designed to be and one of the things that I really love about this game and like it honestly made me think about Tarkovsky a lot um, and Tarkovsky's Stalker is because the strength of Stalker is the moments in which it engages with visual poetry uh, and the important thing to remember about film is that film, in terms of like how it's constructed, shares a closer relationship to poetry than it does novel writing. Because the process of like associative meaning making from cut to cut is more similar to the ways in which poems are constructed. And so 
the thing that I love about this game is that it draws attention to that associative process and how that associative process could have been different. Mm -hmm. uh, and it creates this like sense of visual poetry where you're like, yeah, I clicked on this one wine glass and it took me to a totally different drink in a totally different time period and a totally different mood. And in doing so, like really drives everything forward for well, me. Well, for me, like what's funny is sometimes it'll like you click on something and what the game seems to be perceiving is like a relationship or some sort of like uh, interaction happening and it finds something sort of that it's suggested by what you're clicking on too. So like there, there are moments where um, you are like I had a moment where I clicked on a character resting their head against the shoulder of another character, and I got to a uh, very interesting scene, but it was like, it was like, if you click on either of those characters before that moment, you go to totally different places, but it was this type of intimacy, mm -hmm. this one moment that like, like launched the parser along a different right. course, mm -hmm. because like, it was like, okay, well actually here, even though the, the objects in frame are the same. Now they have a different meaning. And so clicking at, like, at this juncture right. takes you somewhere else. Right. The moment you're looking at is tenderness as an yeah. idea as opposed to these two actors as objects. And that is, yeah. again, this associative aspect that I really, really love and ends up kind of lending itself to this like visual poetics. I think it's the other thing that's worth noting that you kind of address here that I want to clarify is that every scene has multiple it's not like you're playing a fucking object finding game where you're like can i find the one object in this scene that i'm supposed <laughs> to click on uh you don't have to do that there's many objects in every scene and the other thing is that they will take you to the point in the clip you are going to where the object is present not the beginning of the clip yeah Yep. And that is such an important distinction, and for me, again, really helps with this like visual poetics that I, I really love, and is also like this cool experience of being like, oh, cool. Let me watch the end. The thing that I always do is I watch the end of the clip from where I was sent, yeah, and then I go backwards to the beginning of the clip and I watch it in full. I love. Um, I, I I really agree with you, and I, I was listening to you guys talk about um, video game guides mm -hmm. the other week, and I'm just like laughing at the idea of trying to write you a guide can't. for this game and, and and because you can't and and I love that yeah. because the game very deliberately I think pushes against your desire to like do gamer shit to it it just like you are just associating you're just in there and you're like clicking around and feeling it and it's like you're dropping into this scene and you're dropping into that scene and eventually you will discover a story there is a puzzle there but it is just vibes. It's not. And I think one of the like strengths of Barlow's games is that we see so many TV shows where the entire hook is like, man, can you figure out what the mystery is that everyone's alluding to? And it doesn't work because it's not that complicated, right? And once you unpack it, you're like, this is just not that interesting because the show is constructed around this idea of there being a mystery at the heart of it. Right. And once I can kind of figure out what the leading theories are and they're pretty much confirmed, like, the what I'm seeing that gets us there is just not that interesting. I think one of the things that has sort of been true since her story is that if you were to if if someone like presented you with a sheet like with a like a timeline of everything that happens and all the key relationships and exactly what happens, that doesn't get you to what you get out of the experience of playing this game, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is like you are being pulled along by the mystery and yeah. like the act of solving the mystery brings the story into focus, but. It is not dependent on that mystery, and you, the experience you have is not 
defined by like, did you find all the breadcrumbs and figure out what really happened to Marissa Marcel? I didn't even, because you said at the top that the question was what happened to these movies or what happened to this actress. And that wasn't my experience of it. I might have missed if that was like a, a, a setup or if it was a setup in marketing so, or something, but I was just like chasing my own mystery. What does anyone, th- what is saying? I'm, I'm curious because this is actually now, uh, this is me trying to maybe settle an argument with Natalie. Uh, I'm curious. What is, like, does everyone have a sense of what the conceit for this game is? Like, like, what do you think is going on here? I have an okay idea. Okay. There was an actress. She released three films, then disappeared. No one knows why. You have access to all of the footage in which she has ever appeared. Okay. Kato? That. Basically. Okay. Yeah. So, the one thing that didn't really like one of the, one of the conceits here is that like literally half mermaid got the footage dump <laughs> and like fed this all into their parsing database hmm. and like but uh-oh because of the dark powers around this film the the weird cursed vibes uh you know now now the machine just does this and it's up to you to sort of like parse like figure out why did the three, what happened that these three unreleased films from this like legendary film star who never released a picture, like, like what explains it all? Mm-hmm. And this is the part that like, I think I struggled with from, from the jump was like, it's such a cool idea, but it's also so abstracted yeah. that I'm kind of like, where, where am I in all this? Cause, cause her story is like, Beep, turn on your 1990s PC. Uh, here's all the interview footage. Good luck sorting through it all. And the same thing is going on in um, Telling Lies where you are clearly, you've hacked into some, some Fed's computer and you're using their like professional interface to get at like all the video files mm-hmm. from this case. In, in Immortality, I'm just like, this is cool. You're an editor I with like a moviola. It. Rob, you're sitting uh, at your fucking moviola. Uh, yeah, and you sit in the half moviola, and then you powered by metaphor. How do you <laughs> click? How do you click an image on a on a moviola? You don't, right? It's, it's, so it, this is this is the one part where I was like, uh, I was like, this is really cool. Once you just like go with the flow and you just start to ride it, but in mm. terms of the initial like, where am I? Where am I situated in relation to this story of these pictures and and Marissa? Like, I didn't get it until Natalie was like, okay, so here's the deal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't. I did not realize that, like, the bit is, to some degree, carried outside the game uh, by Half Mermaid. Well, I guess to Natalie, it's like my, my free consulting is that you don't need that shit. It's just like you don't need that setup at all. Well, and clearly they didn't. No. Because, I don't, cause, right. like, the, 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 con- the conceit is cool enough that, like, even if you're like, I don't understand how the magic editing machine works, but I, I must care. continue to. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. I want to puck a poke Give around. me those pallets. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> um, I am curious because this was, this was one thing as well. Um, you know, to, to some degree, like, the shadow of Me Too, uh, like, yeah. Like lingers long over this over this game, yeah. And I think one of the dynamics here that I was kind of curious how it all landed with you. In some ways, like this is a game about an exploited actress. 
in some ways it's a game about the actress being an exploiter herself, um, but also along the way, like as we comment on the way sexuality is handled and commodified, um, you know, on a set or or used by powerful creators. At the same time, this is also a game where we are we are going to see a lot of like sexual content and a lot of nudity, which is I think it works. But at the same time, the thing that I couldn't quite escape is to what degree is like when does a game stop commenting on a creative phenomenon and to what do like when does it like start embodying it (laughs) (laughs) uh well i'll say one of the first scenes that i stumbled upon was uh, a sex scene yeah um and when that hit me the first time i was like this feels exploitative uh and not exploitative in the sense that a movie uh, from the 70s is like it's not, it's not the game commenting it just felt like the game mm-hmm. was um, was like isn't it neat that we got like a naked woman in a video game um, but I think I, 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 don't, I don't I can't give you an answer but I think the game does engage with it seriously yeah. it is a thread in the game about you think this person is being exploited but then the person has agency and the person exploits Mm -hmm. um and i I, I don't know that there is a clear answer in there but at least it's engaging with it in a way that feels uh that it justifies the nudity yeah yeah it's engaging with things intentionally but like also every time i open up this game i feel the specter of like a potential like I don't again I haven't seen this but every time I open this game I feel the specter of a potential sexual assault throughout the entire thing Mm -hmm. in a way that is deeply uncomfortable maybe that's partly it too is just the voyeuristic nature of it like you 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 just start staring at it and you're like but what do I know about this game's manufacturer and also like the specter of the way these stories are constructed and the pieces that are currently in play. Like one of the first scenes I stumbled upon was a um, rehearsal for a sexual assault scene uh, Mm -hmm. in Ambrosio uh, and a rehearsal of that scene that felt really weird at times and very suddenly would like shift in tone. Are you sure it was Ambrosia or do you mean two of everything? No, it was in Ambrosia. Because two of everything has some like dry run scenes of them like plotting out an assault that I'm just like, holy shit, this is intense. It's, this is like, it's, it's a scary, it's a scary set. No, I mean the, the one in Ambrosio. Uh, where they're in the in the basement, uh, like the in the the the. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right, that in, is in the catacombs. Right, but it's not even rehearsed. Like that is, yeah. you are looking at them plotting out and like right, doing the choreography right, right, right. for it in a way that like there were moments where it snapped into place where I was like, this feels uncomfortable for every single person on this set. Yeah. Uh, in a way that I do not like looking at. Well, and I think, so, when we were talking about the method thing, I, I, I was reminded of one of my favorite uh, lines, which is, um, was it the, is it the set of, I always get the Marathon Man and Running Man confused uh, in my head, the the one that's with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier. Um, but 
there's there's this bit where he was like he was acting opposite Lawrence Olivier and you know he's he's trying to talk through like how he's going to approach a scene and uh, sort of like this is Olivier's famous ethering of the entire like method school of acting where he just turns to Hoffman and he's like my dear boy why don't you just try acting <laughs> and it's 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 a brutal line but also like kind of captures this the, this this ethos but also you sort of think about you know Hoffman one of the great serious actors of this mode you know what emerged later is that like he was a toxic presence on set right like Meryl Streep like hated working with him cuz like he apparently like physically hit her uh during i think Kramer versus Kramer um and there were like later allegations around Hoffman that like you know you're 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 sort of left with this question of to what degree is this um is this a, this mode of acting a cover for uh bad actors the wrong pun i don't want to do it but like it's a cover for an abuser right um like acting out their abuse and i think that's that's something that makes this this game feel to that point of it being uncomfortable but fascinating to be in the presence of it like so much of what you're seeing is at that like interface zone between like what is creative process and what is like abuse what is exploitation it's funny there's again without details but there's a scene where somebody who's uh working on minsky is like this is crazy it's just like the conditions of this shoot yeah. are insane and it's like not even that bad of a thing but he's like i'm tired of this it's like you, you people are nuts and it's like I, I you're not treating me right and i'm leaving and they have to replace the actor. Well, and this is being voiced by this is being given voice by a character we're sort of introduced to as kind of a fuddy duddy and also kind of a self-important like old school actor. But yeah, and you, you, you he ain't wrong. No, he's not <laughs> wrong. And then they're like, "Get out of here, fuddy duddy. We're just gonna keep." And then we're people just gonna get hurt. The, we're just gonna do all these scenes. But it's gonna be straight fucking. Yeah, don't worry about <laughs> yeah. it. And, but 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 he was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, like I think that's one of the, that's that's an interesting beat, right? The first person to sort of sound the alarm. What's going on, Minsky? Is a guy who's like, well, he's just a prude and he's kind of an asshole. And like both things are true and also completely correct. Yeah, completely correct. Uh, I think we'll leave it there because I think to get into some of the stuff that's late game and about the third picture, we start to get into things that uh, y'all need to sort of see for yourself. I guess last thing I'll, I'll comment on is they do such a good job making these look like three period films. I was just like texting Natalie. I was like, just to be clear, just make sure none of this was shot film, right? And no, it's all like it's all like regraded, recolored digital, but like. Ambrosio in particular yeah. looks like period it, color. It is stuff. astounding. To me, the one that got me is actually two of everything because I shot on those mini DVs of the era <laughs> and they that look is so spot on. Yeah. They got it so right. And I, I was actually wondering if they actually shot it on like a mini DV format. She says no. Yeah, well, uh, that I don't know, but it does it does sound like they might have used the same format for all three and just like Wild. in their uh, like coloring process, like tweaked it all to look period appropriate. It's it's incredible. Like this is one of the other things that I think makes it such a treat for like film nerds is you're just like you know what films look like from this peri- from these periods and here are three pretty convincing facsimiles of mm. of what they look like. So yeah. uh yeah that is that is immortality. We'll probably do a bit more of a spoilery discussion uh at some point, but uh yeah it is 
without us even getting into the the real shit in immortality, <laughs> I think it's there, there's a lot there uh, to sort of take in. Um, Kyle, where where are we at on time? A break would be good. All right, uh, we will take a quick break and we'll be back after this. Unless you're listening to the ad-free version, in which case, welcome to our kitchen. Cook, cook, cook. This is where we cook up the podcast. <laughs> no one, no one, no one else gets to hear this, but you. You're in our kitchen. Rob's got a big pot of there boiling water. Oh no, one... he dropped it. Oh no, oh, you've been so There's only one version of the podcast. Everyone gets to hear it. Just some people. So that everyone heard that one. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> Waypointplus.com is where you get that free version of the podcast. And if you run into problems with it, send an email to gamingadvice.com. Kata will help you. Yeah, we'll fix it. If you get Waypoint Plus, Rob won't spill the boiling water from our (laughs) podcast kitchen all over you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Uh, so, what I've been playing, uh, aside from Immortality of late, is I finally got hold of F1 Manager 2022. Mm. And it is. We've been playing a lot of Motorsport Manager. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to. It's been it's been fun, and yeah. also you get a vibe for the sort of the goofiness of Motorsport Manager, and I think. If I have one top level like issue with F1 Manager 2022, it's as a licensed game, there is a sort of self seriousness and lack of whimsy to mm. it that I think makes it feel a little antiseptic wow. compared to Motorsport Manager, sure. and so it becomes much more of a like you're really like it really does feel like you're here to manage the race team. Mm-hmm. Do you feel an absence of little freaks? Uh. Yeah, but the but the weird thing is F1 is fully stocked with that like right. that archetype. But the problem is <laughs> as a licensed game, it can't call attention to the fact that like so we all know that like Fernando Alonso is really strange, right? Like he's he's kind of he's kind of an odd duck. Right. The game can't do that. And so he's just like a phenomenally talented driver you work with and you sort of manage his races. I'm maybe maybe some of the stuff that like so I started a campaign as Alpine, uh which is a a uh brand of Renault. And playing it like this is a team where they are, I'm sorry. What? What's? <laughs> I'm sorry. Why are you dying? Because you said peeing. <laughs> that is, that is, is that how you? Is that, that a is, that different word honest. than the word I'm thinking of? Alpine. Alpine. Yeah. Is that? It is apparently this is how the French like sports ah, car manufacturer ah, goes. Oui. Yeah. Alpine. Alpine. 
Yeah. So sorry, it's just the the lack of the intonation on the peen. Uh, it threw me because like if you, if from a from a French person, it's like alpine, uh, but from you, it was just alpine. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I did start chuckling. Be nice to me. Uh, so. I started the campaign uh, as Alpine, and they were, like, they are sort of in the shit this season for, like, wild driver drama. Um, They are ground zero for some of the strangest power moves that we've seen in years in the F1 driver market. I'm really curious. If I play through a full season, does this game even support the kind of shit that's happened uh, in in this? Because, like, to support it, would be to sort of call attention to the fact that, like, these drivers will cut your throat the second it is convenient to them. Like, they are they are all ruthless, power-hungry, ambitious assholes. And will the game support, like, the kind of things we've seen happen in reality? Is this the WWE 2K problem in which, like, wrestling games as they exist right now are kind of oriented around wrestling as, like, fight between two people and not methodology for generating stories about people? Is that like where F1 Manager is like looking at F1 as a toolkit in a game that people play as opposed to a thing that generates relationships and actions through a particular structure that creates like specific yeah. meanings? It's kind of it, it's kind of both is the thing. Like okay. so there are like I tend to be a hardliner about this, which is that I I do not think it is possible to like F1 without loving the soap opera. Mm-hmm. Like I genuinely don't think it's possible, and I think anyone like I like it is a firm belief that everyone who's like I just want great racing is basically full of shit because you can get great racing elsewhere. I mean, look what happened the moment that they like explicitly made the soap opera part right. of the product. Well, and so there's 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 a genre of fan who's like that's not what I'm here for. I just want to see the great racing. I just want it all to be settled out on track. And it's like it's never been settled out all on track. Like part of F1 from the beginning is that it's highly political. Um, it's a lot of egos and money like float like flowing around each other and working for and against one another. And so like to some extent, an F1 manager game needs to be about like settling it all out on track, and mm-hmm. it has to be like good race tactics and right. like doing strategy calls and such. But the other part of like running an F1 race team is handling the weird personalities of drivers and engineers. It is about handling the relationships with other teams uh, and sort of working together to see how you can change the rules of F1 in your favor or figure out how you can gang up on somebody else in the sport to try to take them down. Uh, for instance, if a bunch of teams are getting their ass kicked, uh, they might all gr- like sort of put their heads together and be like, do we think that car that's beating our asses, do we think everything on that car is legal <laughs> under the rules? And they will, they will all sort of decide, like, you know, we don't know. But we think if we file a complaint, we might be able to screw these guys. So, like, they'll work together in that way. That doesn't necessarily appear to be there in F1 Manager. I've only, I only had the game for, like, a day before I had to come down here. So I haven't played too much. But it doesn't – the the managing the races is there, but the circus that surrounds them, right. which is where those relationships come into play, it feels almost entirely absent mm. as I play it. And – 
that makes it so much less engaging and charming experience than like Motorsport Manager, right? Like right. Motorsport Manager doesn't do much. All it does is have like little weird little like a handful of little like cartoon characters that show up and they say little things and then you like get character traits about yeah. them. Uh, whereas like, you know. And sometimes they'll, you know, be born again. <laughs> right, no, that's the thing. Like Dodger Stephenson, our, yeah. our, our uh, Wunderkind driver for the team we were, we were controlling, like became... A serious like Christian camp counselor type dude yeah. uh, midway through, and that's weird. But it's also very funny <laughs> right. that like here's a here's a note on this character. This game can't offer those kind of comments mm-hmm. on the drivers. Instead, they're sort of collections of stats and attributes, right. and they're all great. <laughs> uh, and and so I think that's one of the things that that's kind of missing is that even though they they really brought some serious production values to this thing, mm-hmm. like they didn't just get. The announcers from the Sky TV broadcast, which is is commonplace, um, though they recorded more dialogue, which is cool. But like, they got the audio from team radios into the game, so the actual drivers' voices are in the game. Mm. Their their race engineers are in the game, so all the things that like sell the experience as being authentic are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the character models like look phenomenal compared to Codemasters annual <laughs> atrocities uh, as far as like the way character models look. So like all those production values are really good and it does a great job of like, wow, this looks and feels like F1 in a lot of ways. And yet because it is so respectful or stayed mm-hmm. in its presentation, it also at times doesn't feel like much of anything. Right. Does so does it have things like driver form still where at least there's some sort of variance or are there stats their stats? Because one of the things that, that actually kind of like is really fun is like, ah, oh, shit, he's having an off day. We have to switch which driver we're focusing on because we have a team of so, drivers and things like that. I don't know if I've identified anything that like serves as form, but mm-hmm. they have given something that actually seems to make it much more dependent on you, hmm. what form they're in, which is um, so... As the motorsport manager, there's the practice phase, the qualifying, et cetera. But in F1, there's three three practices. And they, they have all those. And the thing that you're in tension with in F1 manager is that you can either set the car up well. Uh-huh. Or you can just give the driver more running time with the car set up and get a feel for, like, how the car behaves on the track. And those two things are in tension. Hmm. And so you will get a like setup number like how confident like how dialed in they feel the car is but then separate from that there's a track uh, acclimatization number right that is about how hooked up they feel on this track with this car right and if you have str- if you struggle to find the ideal setup for a car or you li- or you spend too much time chasing the perfect setup mm-hmm. the driver starts the race weekend being like maybe not as on as you would you would need them to be so it's like kind of an interesting take on that which is like it's it's less roll the dice and right. like oh this driver is like really on it and it's much more like oh they do not feel like you set them up to succeed hmm. do other drivers feel like they set you up to succeed like they've been set up to succeed or is this a situation where a interesting decision in motorsport manager of we have a team of drivers who do we want to field right now is absent from F1 manager in exchange for a different question of how many times are we putting this person out on the track and for how long? So uh, I would say, so in, in F1, you're 
by contract, you're almost always going to be running the same two drivers. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're you're fielding your your slate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they they have gotten an interesting tension of you know, like you always know that you could maybe have a slightly better car set up. You always know that. But there probably is a point where you just need to be like, and that's time. Right. Like now we like this is the setup we got, and we just need you to get a lot of reps on it. Uh, so that you know how that car is going to behave, and you can drive it to the best of your ability, and that's and that's where it gets interesting because like getting the setup right is hugely valuable. Also, having a driver feel that they can really push it uh, is really valuable. Um, and I will say, like, so does yeah, does swapping setups end up taking time out of practice or yeah, huge uh, amount yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so because like in in Motorsport Manager, you make that on the fly and like you can have them do another lap in the quali- qualifier or whatever, as if like the ma- the car magically got yep. like totally no, tuned dude, in two like, seconds. This is the thing. <laughs> right, so right, like if you want to like, I f- I think it might it's a thing where like some changes are very fast, like twe- tweaking wing angle is fast. But if you're like doing a full like we're changing stuff on the suspension, moving the ballast, <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, uh, you'll be like, okay, how long is this change going to take to push through? Eight minutes. Ooh. And like, admittedly, the practice is an hour long, so that feels okay. like a long time. But but, so. but if you do that process like three times, right. now that is that yeah, that's twenty five minutes of just sitting in the pits not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, and Ooh. so that's that's where it gets kind of interesting. I will also say, the racing action looks great. Um, hmm. the the way you watch it is you can watch the track map, uh, which they really stupidly did uh, the Sky TV broadcast graphics for the track map, which is like a weird perspective on it. It doesn't actually give you a full top down of the map, which hmm. kind of sucks. Like there's places where like this is like in the name of making it look like the TV broadcast, they really screw you on legibility uh. of how this, and like, and no team looks at infographics like this. This is not how right. an F1 manager sees the track. Right. Um, so that, like, that's a place where they are, they're in a worse place than Motorsport Manager. A place where they have uh, like way exceeded it is you can switch to the in-car views and the racing action looks really, really good. So this is the question I was going to have: Is that like from a, from what I understand about like sports games broadly, sports games like kind of live or die based on their like technical yeah. like development over time, and that's from how I understand like the play of like FIFA, um, like the, the various two K games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really curious if this like this was a manager that was interested in visual fidelity in the same way that so. something like a Forza is interested in visual fidelity. Maybe not to that extent, but it's close. Got it. Uh, it is like I mean, this is Frontier, right? So this is uh, Jurassic World, the, the theme park manager, uh, right? That's that's Frontier. Jurassic. Jurassic I'll World it. Evo. I'll believe that. Something like that. Uh, Frontier. But, like Frontier has made a bunch of these games. Um, right, Jurassic World Evolution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and so they, they they always do like put a premium on making it look good. They've clearly, like, unlike, say, football manager type games where, like, it's fully abstracted. You just right. watch the stats play out and, like, a little abstraction of the of the playing pitch, like, do stuff. Here, you're like, okay, I want my lead driver now to go into full attack mode. And I'm going to go into the in-car camera view and see how they do. That shit's exciting. Like, you're like, all right, like, get him. 
begin the attack. And, like, you'll go and you will see your driver now pushing the car harder and, like, trying to get a good slipstream, the other driver defending. It all looks very convincing and very good. It isn't a perfect simulation. Um, there are there are places where it feels like two drivers will get stuck going in a loop where neither can draw away from each other. Mm-hmm. And, like, that sometimes happens. But it happens constantly in this game where, like, if two cars are really closely matched in terms of performance, they will just, like, carousel position for, like, the entire race. And you can't, you can't break out of it. The soap opera isn't there. No. The systems seem to mostly be there. And you say, so the spectacle is the spectacle of the sport of F1 landing for you. Like, the, it looks good, yes, but is the spectacle of the thing. I think so. I, I think so. Because I, I think in those places where, like, you finally set everything up to execute a difficult overtake, and, like, now you have left enough in the, in the, in the tank to, uh, basically run away from the guy you just passed so he can't come back at you. Like, the moments where you, like, fully pull it off and, like, begin to draw away, uh, that stuff feels tremendous. Um, and, and so, like, I think, like, the spectacle does land. It It's just that I wish it were a little more fun in the way mm-hmm. Motorsport mm-hmm. Manager is. Yeah. And I'm not and I'm not sure it can be. You know, it's it's very... Inspired by F1 broadcast graphics is all very, um, you know, the interface is the the aesthetic they've gone for is like carbon fiber is is the <laughs> what, what they've tried to do, and so it's just like there's it, it, it's just like there's not much room for it to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's kind of missing in all this is, to your point, like so many people in F1 are kind of strange birds, and so much of F1. F1 is a difficult sport to understand without understanding sort of the personalities and the cultures of each team. And all that kind of feels like flattened out of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, in, like for reasons I understand. Right. Like, because when you have real people's names uh, up there, you can't Official be licensing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can't, you, you can't do the thing where it's like, yeah, Fernando Alonso is going to try to run the team behind your back. Good luck. <laughs> oh, by the That'd way, be fun though. He right? might. By the way, in a fit of pique, he might just decide tell you that he's not renewing his contract while you were supposedly like in the process of renegotiating <gasps> it, and uh, you know, then just bounce to another team. He might just do that to you. Um, that's not. That does not appear to be something you got to worry about in this game too much. It would be sick if somebody like you had to like, <laughs> I don't know, fight with uh, fight with like somebody trying to convince people of of things because there's that there's the the tiniest bit of that in in motorsport manager where you're trying to make sure your boss is happy through uh, certain metrics so like yeah like i don't know what it would be a drama meter (laughs) or something that stuff seems like it would be you know it would make sense with but even that even that's like kind of a good example of like you do get meters in motorsport manager like here's just the vibe around this person here's how happy they are. are how are they feeling about things lately I can't see really see any of that in this. Like you get a mm. sense of, oh well, because you have a good racing weekend. Like this driver got like experience points to maybe upgrade their stats or right. something like that. But you don't get, as far as I can tell, a thing where it's like Fernando is sad because <laughs> he read what you said to him in the papers, and now uh, his feelings are hurt, and he'll be at a negative like two all stats or something, and. 
I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I kind of like that. Tell like, me that kinda, Fernando's gonna be sad. I want to know. I, like I, I want. I kind of want that to be in the game. Um, I like. Yeah. And it's and it's so clearly part of the sport. It's just not here. Um, right. and I think that's the at least as far as I can tell, and I think that's where it, where it struggles. Like a lot of sports sims, management sims. Like one of their core dilemmas is how much do we surface and how much do we like have being driven by like hidden stats behind the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess at this point I'm kind of hoping there's more happening hidden because what's on the surface is like, yep, the drivers all do their jobs and they you know operate according to these ability stats, but like you don't get a sense of there being intangibles in play. And it's a sport very much about intangibles. Right. If, if it exists, someone needs to release the mod that reveals the metadata yeah. uh, underneath the game so you can get, so you get like, it might not say that Fernando's sad, but you will see that Fernando's joy meter dropped 10% yeah. in the midst of this race. And now suddenly <laughs> that weird thing that happened makes a lot more sense. Um. I guess one thing for people who are curious about like how it does with the team management stuff, yeah, a lot of it's very uh, familiar from uh, motorsport manager in terms of like, upgrading facilities and such. One thing I do appreciate is like F1 is a sport that, to bring costs under control, regulates your access to things like wind tunnels and computer modeling software. Huh. Uh, because mm. you know computer modeling is the same thing, where like if you have more money to burn with uptime in terms of running a simulation, you can get a better simulation. And so to prevent like rich teams from being like, okay, fine, we won't run our we won't run our, you know, five million dollar wind tunnel facility very much. So it's a level playing field, but we'll just have our huge server farm, our computer like uh like computer server farm uh handle this instead. That's not gonna that's not in play here either. Uh so when you're doing things like upgrading a part, you are being asked to commit, like, okay, you want a new front wing because you know that, like, your car corners badly. Over the next two months, you have this many hours of, like, simulation time. How many hours of that do you want to commit to designing this new front wing? Because, like, once you pull that 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 account balance down, like, it's gone. You can't, right. like, at that point, nobody can use computer simulations to model the stuff. Right. So... Like, they do a good job of, like, at least creating something that feels authentic in terms of how upgrades have to be prioritized, which is there are places where you're basically just going to have to be like, I don't have much time to put into this part, but we do need a new part. I'm going to hope that, like, (laughs) with a shorthand engineering staff and, like, almost no time for testing or even simming it, we can improve something. And, like, that's kind of cool to see, like, how that impacts uh, the cars. And the simulation feels more granular uh, in that there's more clearly push and pull in mm-hmm. how cars improve as opposed to, like, Motorsport Manager where it's much more like if you upgrade a car, it's just better. Like, that part right. of, like, the car's just better now. Yeah. It's not like in the act of improving one thing, you actually maybe pulled some other things into <laughs> awkward configuration with it. Uh-huh. That's in play in F1 Manager. Huh, and okay. so that's that's kind of a cool thing, too, where it's like, yeah. well, wow, you really leaned forward on this like type of upgrade. Right. 
and that might not be playing nicely with the rest of your concept. So now you got a lot of work to do. Uh, anyway, that's uh, F1 Manager. I'll probably be playing more of it, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, there's weirdness there to be found. Uh, but I think right now it's it's a good it's a good racing management game, uh, and I would say as far as like the racing itself, it's it's really terrific. I just am not quite there in terms of the spirit uh, mm-hmm. that maybe is like there with a game like Motorsport Manager. Yeah. Um, Emmanuel, I did want to talk to you uh, about a game you've been playing, uh, picking up from our Warhammer discussion the other week. <laughs> So, somehow you found it, you found time to just, like, play a bunch of the Dawn of War series. Like, a lot of the Dawn of War series. Yeah, I've played uh, most of all of them. Yeah. Including, like, expansions and shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, Black. like, yeah, like, I, like I'm like i a little concerned, like, how Are you do you okay? Are you okay? Dude, so, my midlife crisis is just going to be 40K. Like, that's that's how it's So, are we just in it? We're in it. We're okay. fully in it. Have you we're, gotten we're, we're miniatures? looking at miniatures. That's oh. what's happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's happening. Don't look at me like that, Ren. <laughs> we all have to deal. It's either this or, you know, something uh, convertible. I don't know. So so, so you got through. You, you played that whole series, basically. But yeah. where I want to get to is you played Dawn of War 3. And, and so we just had an email about um, games that people remember Basically wrongly, yeah. where people mm-hmm. are like, people are like, oh, you know, this game is the one where, but it's not. It's just like how people imagine the game. It becomes mm-hmm. commonplace, but it's not true. Dawn of War Three was widely remembered as the one where Relic are looking at kind of the RTS genre, maybe in a bit period of decline, the MOBA being ascendant, and basically making an RTS MOBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The like small squad based one, right? Well, so the they that was been their trend from like Dawn of War Two was also like we're going to shrink it down okay. and like focus on a fewer number of units and make it more like hero driven. So let me ask. Yeah, you've played it. Yes, but it's been so, a while. When I went back to it, when I went back to it, I did a skirmish map. Uh huh. I was like, I cannot parse how this fucking game works. So that was my experience. <laughs> so here, my memory of it is, as we've discussed. At length, I'm a huge Relic fan, and I'm a huge uh, Dawn of War fan specifically. And I was very excited. I love Dawn of War 2, but Dawn of War 2 is the one that was really small and squad-based. You only had four units, and you micromanaged those four units. And then 3 was coming, and they're... I don't remember the pitch exactly, but I think they were basically like, oh, we're doing an RTS. We're doing, like, we're going back to our roots or something like that. And my memory of it is booting it up, and getting in a skirmish yeah. match and being like, this is dog shit. It's just like, right. I don't even want to touch this. <laughs> There's like no base you can build. It's like all like mo- modules off your main base. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like the maps are, a bunch of the maps appear to have lanes. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. um, brush that mm-hmm. units can hide in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And cap- like, you know, capture points that basically function like towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Like, it also felt like units were so modular at that point that you're really kind of specking out what your build is. And yeah. I was like, this is a lot. Like a MOBA. This sounds like a MOBA. <laughs> yeah, a so MOBA. <laughs> that is both, like, true and not at all true. Um, and there's there's two things going on. One is I booted up Dawn of War 3 because we were going to talk about 
Warhammer. Yeah. And you boot it up now, and the splash screen, like as soon as you get to the main menu, there's like a big message. It's like a message from Relic. Game's dead. And they say, it's, the message is, hey guys, sorry about the Skulls system. It's like, that was a big mistake. <laughs> It's gone. Don't hey, worry about it. What was the it. skull system? I don't even know. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's some sort of um, progression system uh, where the more you play a faction and specific units, I think, as well, you unlock, what are they called? They're like war strategies or something. Okay. And that's where the build comes in, where mm. uh, in every match you pick three elites, which are hero units, and you pick three war strategies, which modify either those hero units or a particular building or another unit so for example your basic ranged orc unit can throw a grenade but if you apply one of these war strategies the grenade is also a smoke grenade which gives you cover it's small stuff like this and I assume that the skull system well, I, I'm not assuming this. I know because it's a very strange message because the message is, hey, we got, rid of, we got rid of it. But also, this is what we were trying to do, which is not something you see often. It's like it's an apology. It's like, we're really sorry about this. This is what we were going for. And what we were going for is like we were trying to teach you. We were trying to slowly unlock these systems and teach you how to do it. We realize you don't like that. It's gone. So the experience of playing it now is different for that reason. But also, I just don't see how... because. My memory of it also was, oh, they're doing a MOBA, and I hate yeah. MOBAs, and I don't want that. But it was never that, really. <laughs> um, you have hero units. It, it is as much of a MOBA as Warcraft 3 is a MOBA. Okay. Which which is to say not. It's not, but it, it is in the sense that all MOBAs come from Warcraft yeah. 3, right? Mm-hmm. So the elements are there. You have units that have abilities, and and they're more valuable than your average like archer or whatever. Um, so it has that, but that doesn't make it a MOBA. Um, it has as many or as complex of a base building system as Dawn of War 1 has. It has as many units. Yeah. Um, it, it is basically their iteration on, on the first Dawn of War. And it's mostly much better. The game looks amazing. It's like even today, it looks really good. Uh, all the buildings animate in unique ways. And change if you upgrade them. It's, they, there's a lot of fun, um, like in the orc faction specifically, and how everything looks and reacts. Um, yeah. So, I'm also curious, like, you mentioned the campaign also feels like a pretty traditional RTS campaign mm-hmm. in a lot of And I think that's the... I think I always kept, like, trying to get into it via skirmish, because like, that's generally what I spend most time on in RTSs. So I was like, yeah, let's see what the new Dawn of War, like, is from a multiplayer standpoint. But, like, I never actually did see how well the game tutorializes itself, makes clear what's going on through like the campaign. Does it feel like a good Warhammer-ish campaign, uh, and does it work as a way to like like sell the game concepts that they're playing with? It's probably the best campaign that they made in the Dawn of War series. This is fucking me up. <laughs> and because um, it 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 forces you to play all the factions, which I don't know, maybe you have something against the Eldar and you don't want to touch the Eldar. But in terms of a tutorial, it's really useful because um, it almost too slowly introduces you to unit by unit and then 
eventually matures into like now you've learned all these units and now you're going to learn like the gist of this faction. So once you graduate Eldar school, there's an Eldar mission where you're rapidly moving your entire base around, which is if you remember from Dawn of War, that is one of their best abilities. Is yeah. If you're feeling like you're about to get crushed, you can just get your get entire on that base. Webway. Yeah, just get the entire base out of there and relocate and, and start over. Um, and they do that for every faction. Yeah. Uh, and also, during the Warhammer podcast, we talked a lot about how those games always tell the same story over and over again, yeah. which this one definitely does. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, shit, really? Is, like, is, is chaos there? Yeah. Uh, well, eventually. Oh, you find, you know what I mean? whoa, whoa. Wait, chaos wait, isn't there, but then it chaos? is. Yeah, no, it's always the same series. Yeah. It's like, orcs. Who's behind the orcs? It's the Eldar. And why are the Eldar doing this? Chaos. It's like that's always the order of <laughs> events. Yeah. But I will say something fun about this is the because you're it's forcing you to play every faction. So the enemy is not one particular faction. It is the flaws of each faction. So yeah. I was I was that was one of the things I'm curious about is is about the factions broadly. Do these win conditions feel distinct from one another? Um, and do they not f- really. They're okay. just like they're they're like this unit needs to die, or you need okay. to hold out here until the timer runs out. Um, it's stuff like that. But the faction stuff is interesting because it's all about what is the problem with each one of these factions, right? Mm-hmm. So with the Space Marines, it's all about um the Inquisition, right? It's the the power struggle between boots on the ground and the the top brass that doesn't understand what actually yeah. needs to happen. And with Eldar, it's all about um, like these legacy families trying to control this this ancient, you know, civilization. So it's yeah. at least that stuff is fun. And then they kind of do Vinny said um, that what he wanted to do is some sort of like mashup squad. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of like the game gets there. No. Yeah, it does. Fuck, wait. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no, wait. Yeah. It's like at the end, it's like the only way to like defeat this horror is a big team up. Yeah. And it's very fun. It's very fun. It's more Saturday morning cartoon vibes, but that's like a change of pace for that yeah. world. And it's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause I think one of the funny things that they did a good job with, with like, Dawn of War One, and then with Space Marine is like it's kind of very serious, right? It's 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 very like uh, the 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 plight of the Space Marine chapter captain, uh, <laughs> torn between duty and then what they see is the evident right, uh, you know, on the ground, and it's it's all very like done in that stentorian, like very very actorly way, I guess. Inquisitor, <laughs> yeah, like you know, like for for ages. Uh, like Mark Strong played the Space Marine in the game, uh, and I think was also the same dude in a disastrous like CG movie that they made, which oh, was still kind of good if you like Warhammer. <laughs> There's a lot of good fan made CG. Well, Warhammer. yeah, yeah. There's great ones, but like they made their own stuff that was like not good. I didn't see this. I need to. But see also, this. it was kind of good. It was so. It was like. It it kind of it, it was a, a very under animated uh, space marine movie they made about the ultramarines uh, 
finding chaos in an unexpected <laughs> yeah. place, let us say. Uh, but like, what's so funny is that, like, there is so like they're so starved for animation resources that like characters like do not move convincingly. Uh, it is. It, it looks about as good as like if you if you scripted the entire game in like the Dawn of War engine, like this movie uh, would be about like that. Like would probably be improved by that. But oh. they've also got it being acted. Like they got like uh, William Hurt and Mark Strong to be the voice actors for him. <laughs> so like phenomenal actors being whipped at this like disaster of a project. And but it turns out you just don't care because it's Warhammer. And so of course like of course the little barely mobile statuesque figure is just going to start, start blurting like in like the most Shakespearean overtones, uh, these lines of dialogue and it turns out that's all that's all I want. I've I've been campaigning for this in Slack with you, but I yeah. highly encourage you to try it because it's the most animated and fun and humorous that that world that that I've seen it. That's so funny. I have to, I, okay, I will have to. I, I will have to give this another shot because, like, I know Ian Williams reviewed it for us uh, back in the day and really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think it also. It's weird that we remember it being such a MOBA. Like, like it was trying to ape the the MOBA thing at the time. Yeah. There was like a MOBA panic. It's like 2017, and everything was becoming a MOBA, and RTS players were very upset about that. And it just, I don't know. And you're just like, the whole thing was overstated. Yeah. Entirely. What and they the, lean into the MOBA. Like, what were the MOBAs? Na- name the oh MOBAs. Oh, my God. I mean, there was a time where I was hit up with MOBA pitches at the rate of, like, crypto pitches. It's yeah, just like the entire lot. industry was like, this is it. This is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing it for 10 years. We're all going to be League of Legends. We're all going to be League of Legends. It's going to be the best. Right, but how many of those came out? Oh, my God. A lot get abandoned, but, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was the ones that kind of crossed over to from, like, different, like, uh, fucking Battleborn, right? Like, that counts. Dude, there was a Dead the, Island MOBA. Yeah. Mm. Bro, there what was... the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> what? I swear to God. Hepate Vu, my guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm trying to think I, of like the most so, obscure one. Well, I think well also like just uh, terrible decisions being made. Like um so oh, Blair, what's his name? Um but like small team makes Sins of a Solar Empire. Incredible RTS. Um like one of the cool like four X RTS, it's it looks amazing, sounds amazing, campaign like matches can take hours because it's basically a four X and like it's 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 all cool. It rolls. And for their follow-up, they're like, fuck this. This genre's dead. We're going to go make Sins of a Dark Age. It's going to be a MOBA. And, like, they just kind of go off and founder doing that. Um, they let Stardock wow. take over the entire RTS. Um, and But it's just like, yeah, that entire thing kind of vanishes because they're, like – their owner was just like, nope. It, the next, the next thing to get in on is the ground floor of the MOBA, but it was not the ground floor anymore. It was no. that moment passed. It was no. rapidly like it, it, people were seeing the like meteoric ascent of games like Heroes of New Earth and League of Legends, but it was too late to catch up. Right, right? like the right. the iteration was just going to be too too rapid. Um, but yeah, no, I I I, I, I was weird as though. I, I, it was just a few months ago I went back at this game, and I was like, I just, 
I couldn't parse how it was working on that skirmish map. I was like, just everything feels weird here and different. There's a few things that will mess you up if you love those other games, the Dawn of War games. And one is that one thing that was really good about them is um, something that's really fun about Warhammer is not just the figurines, but the the terrain. Like people make these terrains and it Mm -hmm. plays into how you play it. Mm -hmm. And the first game and the second game, um, it was such a revelation to have a level where the way a building has fallen matters. Because if I'm on this side, I'm in cover and I get a boost. And if I'm not, then it doesn't. And then it can blow up and I lose my cover. and it was such a revolution at the time. It's a, it was a it was a big draw to yeah. the game, and they they brought it into Company of Heroes, and um, and that part they really did mess up because the cover system is entirely gone unless you are in right. like three designated points on the map. Right. These mm. like yes, I think that's one thing that threw me. I remember this is like there's fortification zones. Yes, and you're yeah. in it, and then a shield goes up if you hold it, and then the shield can be destroyed. Yeah, uh, and it just. That's a mistake. And see, and see that, and that for some reason just morally offends me. So it's coming from Dawn of War, right? Where it's like I go into the shield, come brother, get to the shield bubble. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. Yeah, yeah. There's that, and I had the same reaction at the time. But um, like another small thing is in the first game, the Space Marine assault squad, like the 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 vanilla yeah squad, you kind of mix and match and you make it your own it's yeah. like I'm going to have two plasma guys and a flamethrower guy yep. and a heavy bolter and a captain and it's just like that's how I like it that's my yep. setup and they kind of split those up where it's like you have a tactical marine you have a tactical marines they just like they're the foot soldiers and then the heavy bolter is its own thing and it's just like as a fan of the, of right. the series, I'm like, this is outrageous. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> it is possible there was just a bit too much, like, I was maybe overreacting to some of these changes. 100%, yeah. Uh, because <laughs> that's I was what like, I, I hate it. I <laughs> yeah. hate it. Yeah. Boo! If you get through it, though, All really right. worth it, yeah. Uh, let's get through some emails here before we uh, call it a day. Please. Uh, so, our first email comes in from uh, DW. Hey, point of the way. I am really good at a little puzzle game called Mixalumia. It had some modest press and an even more modest community, but it is one of my all-time favorite games. Every few months I try to beat my endless mode score, and last I checked, I was still third best in the world. I have put in around 300 hours, and my endless mode runs typically last around an hour or two. Uh, Context, most of the game's modes can last only a few minutes. So I'm wondering... What are some small, obscure games that you were or are really into? Uh, obviously, you talk about games you play for podcasts. You probably mention stuff. But, hey, there's new folks listening probably, right? So that's DW, uh, who would also love it if we gave Mixalumia a shot. But I don't know. But <laughs> what, So what are some obscure little games that we like became experts at? Like, for me, it is, like, I, I've told this story before, but, like, I was bizarrely good at well no it's not bizarrely good I was 16 and like <laughs> I did nothing but play the original Delta Force um, and so like and that was a dad core ass like uh, war sim I played right? the demo of that for hours and I had a good oh, demo yeah, well, yeah. that's cause like the voxels the terrain yeah. looks so good like it was like real war shit at a time <laughs> like you couldn't really like do that real well in, in a lot of games that were like uh like pushing polygons. 
So I just poured time into Delta Force and just wrecked house at that. Uh, and it was like, that was probably the most, li- but like, it didn't matter because nobody played Delta Force. It was like a dwindling community of a small niche game, but I was just like, I'm here. Oh, y'all ha- y'all were having fun in this little community? I'm here to dominate. <laughs> uh, and so like for a period of like a year or so, like it was go into the game and just like be at the top of the you know boards the entire time and because I was good at it, I was like, I'm going to keep getting more into this game and investing more of myself into it. Like it's not a, like... I got to a point where there was no reload. There was no replenishing your ammo supply in that game. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no mechanic in that first game for doing that. So, like, once you ran through your ample stock of like rifle ammo and pistol ammo and grenades, like it was done. That was it. There was no more. And it got to a point where I was like, that was what was ending my runs. <laughs> was like, okay, well, I guess it's knife time. Uh, and that, like, that's how far it had pushed. Um, but, like, it was definitely, like, being the absolute lord <laughs> of this tiny little mountain. <laughs> like, it was, it was, but, yeah, that, so that's, that's me. Like, that was, that was me being, like, here's an obscure thing that nobody's playing anymore. I'm going to dominate it. I definitely, I'm shocked that people still have this experience because now that everything is online, it just, I mean, it's designed for you to, very quickly find your ceiling and get crushed by someone else so you're put into a different tier of player. Um, So I can't think of like a current real example where I'm actually like one of the best, but definitely back in the day where you were limited geographically or to like a group of friends. I remember, so two sides of this is I get to a new school, there's a computer in the classroom, it has Mortal Kombat 2 installed. And the guy who was like the computer with and installed, this is fourth grade. And he like, you know, secretly installed it. He's like the king of Mortal Kombat because it's probably his copy of the game. He knows how to play it. He practices at home and he crushes everybody. But I also have it at home. <laughs> and I come in and I crush him and people are like, holy shit. The new kid just crushed the Mortal Kombat king. What the hell? And that feels amazing. Flip side of that, I was like the best Smash player mm. and my group of friends and then we met another group of friends oh. who were playing Smash oh, no, you can't. and I was like <laughs> and all my not, friends my no. friends saw the king fall oh and, no and it, it was I was a Captain Falcon player and a Jigglypuff uh, came in yeah and demolished me and I was I, I, I stopped playing the game <laughs> it was done yeah did you get slept everything I was just, <laughs> I, dude it was a day yeah, I was like, I was like <laughs> what the fuck even happened yeah, here yeah <laughs> Oh, I don't. I don't think I've ever been truly good at a video game. Yeah, I think I. I spent a lot of hours in a game that not many people played, but is. I don't know if it's really obscure, but did you, did you know that Battlestar Galactica had an MMO that played in your browser? That no. was a 3D. What? What? That was a 3D video game that, that ran in Unity in the browser. That was an MMO, and you could fly your little ship around, and you could do the fucking. Uh, Zero like yeah. drift yeah. shit, and it was it was it was right after the, you know the the newer series. Yeah, and I spent, <laughs> I I was in a I was in a guild. I was in a Battlestar Galactica online guild, 
Uh, okay. That, that was that the, counts. it was it was free, right? It was free to play, which is why it also played in your browser. That was the only MMO I ever like really got into as a as a, as a as a. I wanted to say kid, but I think that happened in when I was in college already. Um, I don't know that I was necessarily any like particularly good at it. It's just like a thing, the most obscure thing that I think I like spent a lot of time on, right? Like, because the next biggest thing that I spent like a shit ton of time on is like Dota Two. Everyone and like people know what Dota Two is, right? I think this is probably. <laughs> Rob is like, are you looking up the game? <laughs> yeah, looks legit. It's like, really, it looks cool. it was really cool looking. It was really. This was in your browser in what year? Like yeah, like twenty seventeen or something. Twenty no before no, that earlier. Uh, early, I, 20... I knew you in twenty seventeen. No no no, no. So yeah. Sorry. I feel like I would have heard about my that. My brain is like bad. I was in. I was definitely in college. Two thousand seven ish. Yeah, 2000, oh, 2007, 2008, nine. Oh, that yeah, those this years, is... those years for sure. Um, okay. Yeah, I was a little. Um, I love the idea of you like. You would pick a side. Oh yeah, of course. Cool. You could you could be Cylon or human. You could. <laughs> yeah, just fly yeah. around, and they, there was a there was a a very heavy like everyone wanted to be humans for some reason, which is because they're the good guys. I guess, but the robots are cool. It's cool robots. It's, I don't know. <laughs> they do. They do so much genocide. Right? Yeah, they do. Well, so but much like, as if humans haven't. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, I was gonna say. I think the other thing that makes this difficult is, is as Emmanuel says, one, a lot of people play more games now. Uh, two, I think it's hard to find an obscure video game. Like, like my all of my answers to this question are like, oh, I put like I have a hundred hours into Caves of Could. Like, who gives a fuck, dog? Everyone knows about <laughs> that game. One, and two, that's not a significant out. That's the other thing is I just don't play games that long. Uh, I right. there are in my Steam library. If there is one game legitimately that has earned being over 150 hours as opposed to just being left on for like a weekend or something. Yeah. Um, I I do think like I mean, your story, like I, I remember, God, I can't remember who gave this, like explained this, I, uh, but I feel like it was somebody either associated with like Bungie or like with 343's management of Halo. But like the, the problem of what changed when everything stopped being about local co-op local play is that people like thinking they're good at stuff and the great thing about having like all these little like pods of halo communities is that everyone like there are way more opportunities to feel like i'm pretty good at halo hey we got we got some pretty good games going here (laughs) and you throw everyone into matchmaking online and you know exactly where you stand which is nowhere so fighting games only went through this recently because of netcode and fighting games is so bad and so significant that like it actually did have to stay local for a really long time and i think i've mentioned this in the podcast before but tekken in the year 2019 out of fucking nowhere tekken has as very established community has a very established professionals has people who everyone agrees they are the best in the game of the world right and then one year at a competition, and I believe uh, Dubai, this dude shows up uh, named Arslan Ash, and he beats the best player in the world. Handily. Twice. Knocks him out in... Po- it is... It is, And the guy basically goes, oh yeah, I'm not even the best guy at my arcade. And it's revealed that in this one small arcade in Pakistan, there are the best fucking players of Tekken 7 into the entire world and no one has ever interacted with them and the dude wins Evo Evo Japan and Evo in that same year 
and just completely explodes onto the scene. And that, to me, is the ideal version of yeah. the small pocket community. Weird microclimate. Exactly. Yeah. We're like, accidentally, we did create the best fucking players in the world who play in a way that completely flabbergasts every other major community. Yeah, that's really fun. It reminds me, um, I was talking to my friend who loves playing basketball and is new to the city. And apparently there's this app called Hoops, I think. Have you heard about this? Hoops. You say, you tell the app, uh, you know, I, I live in this area. I can play at these times. And this is roughly my skill level. I feel level. like Joseph is about to burst through the door, grab your phone, <laughs> and like shred it. Like, go on. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, and, and you, you tell the app your skill level, but it's like a, a ladder. It's like five settings. You know, it's like casual, fairly serious, like I'm, I re, I'm really competitive or something like that. And he tells me that he goes and it's, it's very fun and people are super cool and it, it, it matches the skill accordingly. I'm like, that sounds lovely because it's like my experience of playing Warzone is every night I log in and I show up from my friendly little, you know, basketball game. But like LeBron James is there and he's dunking on my face for three hours. And I feel like that's what online games feel like most of the time. <laughs> well, yeah, the, because the economy has shifted. Uh, the economy shifted from uh, trying to make everyone feel good as like the Bungie example, right? Uh, the problem with online multiplayer is suddenly people are like, oh, I'm not actually that good at the game. And now the economy has shifted again to a streamer economy in which like major streamers are fucking with their ELO because people go to watch their videos to watch them fucking stomp. And so entire games and entire swaths of the community are basically turned into like farming grounds for like the views of like 45 fucking streamers. And you are the, they don't need bot matches anymore. You are the bot, Emmanuel. I know. You are, I the, feel like you, a bot. you are the bot being matched. Yeah. And, and, and it is a like fucking awful way of like doing broad, joyous, like fun multiplayer. Terrible. Monetarily effective multiplayer, solid. But hoops recommended. Uh, he says yes. I, yeah. I, I wish Warzone was as good at matchmaking as hoops. Mm, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the uh, like the ability to opt out of that stuff is is key. Um, so let's see. We got some. Oh, hey, this seems sorry. Some old question about uh, bucket business here, but it seems relevant to uh, some show and tell that Ren brought in the other day. Hey, Waypointers, long time, first time, listening to the latest episode, 495, and a couple of topics clicked with some of my own experiences. First, clear ice. As a cocktail and clear ice enjoyer, I have purchased uh, the below fairly reasonably priced item to make my own clear ice. It seems a simple enough set of components that can be fabricated, but the cost, I found it easier to just buy the set. It makes 10 crystal clear ice that melts slowly and can be easily cracked mm -hmm. for stirred and shaken cocktails. True. Uh, so, fair warning, if you, leave it, if you leave it to fully freeze, though, it will begin to stress the internal liner, and over many rounds, it may eventually crack. Uh, but it does appear that these are like slow ice makers that the impurities mm -hmm. filter down. Yep. And so you are left, it's like a nested, it's a nested mold nah. where like all those foul toxins that create the white stuff. All your fucking minerals. Yeah. Get those get those, get those dog out shit of minerals out of here. Well, I'm only H2O. I'm I'm out. I just looked at the picture of this thing and I'm out because that's rubber, right? 
Uh, silicone, yeah. Yeah, I'm out. I mean, do you allow silicone yes. ice trays? Yes. But yeah. they They're absorb better. flavor. They do it, not. What yeah. the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> if you leave, if you leave a silicone ice tray in your fridge, it will start smelling Red, like the other stuff leaving. in there. And is standing. What else? What else is in your freezer? Food? Other foods? Why is it smelling up the In your freezer? freezer? Yeah. In your freezer where the frozen things are. Yeah, man. You got stinky shit in your freezer? I don't know. You got to check the temperature know, of that. What the know, fuck man. are you talking Rob, about? I'm surprised that you allow silicone in your precious Oh, kitchen. my God. Uh, yeah, I, I've never had this problem. <laughs> never, I've, I've never been like, oh, dear, my silicone ice cream tray is taking on the flavor of the many decomposing foods in my freezer. <laughs> no. Oh, no, my I ice Tastes like beef. I am what? a little. I am a. I am a tad concerned. Uh, but okay. I need to try your ice, man. Um, yeah. I, I mean, like, watch, I, watch I, a manual lick an ice cube and be like, uh, mm, "Do you have thirty-three chicken nuggets in your freezer right now?" Odd. Uh, so yeah, but I think uh, Ren, you also recently got the. You, yeah. So you are now on the clear ice, fancy ice, uh, like. Uh, gravy train, right? So like were... my roommate uh, was purchased for her, but then she was like, Ren, I think you're going to like this ice thing. And I'm like, you're right, I do. I love it very much. It is basically uh, designed for like cocktails. It is makes the ice spheres. Yeah. They're so crisp. They're so... I sent one to Rob, and that was a... the the only discoloration on that ice sphere was from condensation. That's it. Otherwise, yeah. perfectly fucking clear. Wow. So smooth, so round. You could put that in a glass you could and just, spin you around could feel like a like ball. You are in an artisanal craft cocktail bar exactly. every time you have even the most pedestrian of drinks. It really good for throwing. It's like it's it's like <laughs> probably not. I mean, probably <laughs> yes, but like don't should. don't. But like, if you need a renewable throwable, if you need a renewable throwable. May I recommend this okay, ice? I do, I do not know what Ren is specking out for uh, at her home. <laughs> Which regenerates once every 24 hours. It's on cooldown. Have you talked through the metal option? Like the metal cubes? Uh, no. You know what I'm talking about? I think so. Well, yeah. hold on. So, I, so I've so i seen, like, first of all, they're, like, pressurized ice makers that I've also seen, which, like, force the impurities out. Uh, right. But they seem, like, kind of a pain in the ass and, like, very energy intensive. What are you talking about in terms I of I believe like the... that some people are like, I don't want this water to melt into my drink. Yeah. So you just get a super cold. You, they're metal cubes. Oh, that's that a terrible. So that's like whiskey stones. Such, that's a horrible idea. That's such a bad idea. So, okay. What? So are you saying you think it's a good idea? I don't know. You're wrong. I think, I I think it's a bad idea because I want to water it down a little. I want like, yeah. That's the problem. Like yeah. things okay. that call for ice. Yeah. It's built in that it's going to be watered down at a certain point. Huh. So like... Like the ice needs to melt for the drink to be balanced. Like you can't like right. so that's not really gonna work well. Uh, but the other thing is just like I have seen some issues with like whiskey. Like people use whiskey stones, right? Uh, like it's do you want like really hard, really hard things? Just like possibly like <laughs> launching ah. themselves down a glass at your teeth. Sure. Um, <laughs> The answer is probably not, maybe. No. So don't. Uh, that. So that's. So like, I understand how people get to be like, I just need a core of steel to to maintain the proper temperature of my. I'm like, 
yeah, that's the, like that's that's a that that is inevitably like either a trip to like a cut lip or a, like a small dental emergency. Uh, there's, there's definitely one I've seen before where it's like a sphere that has water in it or some liquid. Maybe it's not water. It probably isn't water that freezes and holds. That's how you get the temperature. But then when it melts, it just melts within the container and doesn't melt into the drink. I guess it also depends on like the conducti- like the thermal conductivity of the particular material that you're yeah. working with because like there are some metals that heat up faster than water. And so like you are going to lose that like that thermal energy or it, actually if it's heating up you're going to gain thermal energy way faster than you would otherwise with for example a piece of ice you have to make sure you're using the right metal and also you're putting metal in your fucking drink you yeah. what do you do yeah. are you worried that's the you're weird. that's the you're weird. worried about the fucking from. taste of your ice and then like taking on the taste of your silicon in your freezer and out here being like ooh let me put my block of iron in this fucking cocktail real quick ooh yummy yummy <laughs> Iron deficiency be gone. Uh, All right. So here we have an email from Forrest. Hi, Waypoint. Here's a whole video game question for you. (gasps) Some video game genre names are easy for a newcomer to understand because they at least hint at what type of game they refer to. If someone hears about the genre for the first time, I think they should be able to guess what it is. To give you an example, here are some names I consider good. Survival. (laughs) City Builder. Obvious. Shooter. Strong. Mm. Names that aren't great. Real-time strategy game. Dog shit. So is Tetris an RTS? It is real-time, and it's strategy. Mm-hmm. See the problem? No. Souls-like. Okay. Fucking useless. Come Worst on. offender. Immersive sim. Yes. Yeah, okay. Roguelike. There's a pretty solid definition. As games journalists, it's your job to communicate gaming to the wider world. And so I imagine if anyone is going to be frustrated by these terms, it's you folks. Whose fault is this? Can you as games journalists push the lingo in a more newcomer-friendly direction? What's your favorite shooter? Uh, First Encounter Assault Recon. Is that an FPS? It's a shooter. <laughs> no, I got, I got you. I feel like, no, it's an FPS. <laughs> these, these distinctions. It see, is. the problem is that yeah. this, Kato, guess what? Huh. The industry agreed with you, and then we made a better word. <laughs> yeah, right, right. This, this, is, this I, is a solved I'm just, problem. I'm disagreeing with this shooter yeah. being a good one on this list. Yeah. I'm like, too no. Too broad, too, also, too big a bucket. Yeah. This question feels like getting edits from Jason uh, about a games <laughs> piece, which I make, which fills me with deep joy. Um, I so I like the immersive sim is a tough one because like yeah. I like I that's I love that genre, but also I'm like I don't know that's super descriptive no. of what's going on in there because like for instance a whole a whole subcategory of this entire genre is like. They're sneaking games. They're about sneaking. sneaking. And like, well, uh, it's a sneaking mission, Snake. That's, that's how you play them, because you're playing them the correct way, which is how well, I the play other, them. There's the, the other whole, issue. The whole yes. reason it's called an immersive sim is because you could do something else. You know? well, but, and also, though, it's like, oh, look at all the like 
systems that exist in the game outside of you that are operating like without you affecting them and will continue to operate. And also look at all the systems that exist to support you interacting with them in some in some way. Right. But like immersive sim is this weird catch all that like doesn't get mm-hmm. at it, but also is like just from force of habit, like gets at something now, but it's not a good term to describe what's been happening in that space. Well, I mean, also, the, this is, like, a fundamental problem with, like, genre as as a way of categorization. Because, like, genre as a form of categorization actually happens in a bunch of different places done by a bunch of different people at a bunch of different places in time. So, like, for example, if you walk into, like, a video store, the genre categories that you see in somewhere like a used video store are going to be totally different or sometimes totally different from the genre categories that people use when talking about those movies in conversation with one another because they are existing in totally different contexts that means that like the genre is dependent on the social situation in which it is being like utilized and i think like that is part of the problem with games is that there kind of isn't a delineation between the social spaces in which we are discussing these genres right roguelikes are always roguelikes irregardless of when they are being discussed where they are being discussed and to whom they are being discussed and i think it puts us in this like really awkward position where genre instead becomes like a list of traits that are inflexible and non-descriptive uh as opposed to like a way of categorization and like expressing the relationships between objects which is how i think genre actually functions that's why I think Steam's tagging system is fucking awful. Bad, yeah. It's really bad. It's useless. Um, there are things that can be usefully subdivided from each other. Like the real-time game is uh, useful for that because, well, do you mean a real-time strategy game or do you mean like a continuous time game? Because those mm. are two different things. You're like plausible continuous. Like these things all like have a – like it, it matters a lot for what type of game you're describing or like – turn-based systems well is it like i go you go turns or is it like we go or like right is it is it an initiative system like right. in a like a turn-based rpg yeah and there, there, and there are places i think like the terminology does exist to like prize these things apart but then you end up with like long descriptors of like basically traits right. that is this a genre or is this just that game well it's it's more just that like so few games will fall in this bucket that like i'm describing more a very narrow slice of games um, but yeah, that's. Hey, I was gonna say this isn't even getting to how academics describe genre, which yeah. is its own totally different field and like understanding of the way in which like art relates to one another. This is why like I'm a big fan of like a particular theory of genre that focuses on the social motive behind the text as opposed to like in addition to its actual form, substance, uh, and intent. Uh, and but the thing that it adds to the conversation is its social motive, which is different from its intent, which is I think a useful way of thinking about genre because it helps explain a lot of the categories that we use and where and when we use them. Um, shout out, hey, shout out Carolyn Miller. Uh, so I think one last little little suggestion for all of us, um, dear Waypoint. I think, but I feel like we're this in this group of people, this isn't just for me. This is for all of us. Oh, uh-huh. God. Jesus Christ. Rob asks for suggestions on what to explore next when it comes to big purchases. And while ice makers, microwaves, and aging barrels are cool, and Rob considered getting into the world, has Rob considered getting into the world of 3D printers? 
Think about everything you can turn, man. Was this email from Chris Person? Did Chris, is this from Chris? Shockingly, it is not. Oh my god, wait, this is Waz. This is the longest thing Waz has ever written. Waz. Uh, Shout out to Waz. Think about everything. I would not have picked this for a while because Waz's emails are always recognizable because they're one line. And here, think about everything you could do if you owned a 3D printer. Board Game Box has a terrible inner layout. Print a new one. Need something to hold your vinyl album cover on display next to your record player? Print one out. Need a last-minute gift that's homemade so the recipient is guilted into keeping it forever? Download something off Thingiverse and print it out. Jesus Christ. 3D printers are becoming a lot more affordable every year, it seems. My roommate picked up an Ender 3 Pro from the local micro center for $100 and then customized it a lot. So it has a glass bed and can auto-level with print Print from home network. While I was skeptical at first, I've used it a ton, and I can't imagine not having access to one now. There's something incredibly uh, awarding about recognizing a problem in your life and just being able to sit down one night and design out a simple solution and waking up the next day to it being printed out and ready to use. That said, almost all 3D printing material is not food safe. The material is often porous enough that even if the material is food safe, it will trap things. Uh, uh, Emmanuel, I think this might have been what happened to your, to your ice cube trays, honestly. This, is, this sounds like Emmanuel's uh, 3D problem. printed ice trays. They're porous, trapping things you don't want trapped. So you cannot create everything you would need for your kitchen without also exploring the wonderful world of mold casting. So you can make your own molds and then pour a metal or a food safe resin into. From there... You're ready to open an Etsy shop and live that creator's dream of selling artisanal cookie cutters. Have we all considered becoming no. 3D printer people? No. So the thing is that people try to get the, try to get me to do this a lot. Because I feel I like, like I feel like, I like you making would've... things. Okay. Yeah. But that's but making things. I like making things with my hands. That's the problem and why I don't like 3D Couldn't printing. Couldn't you print things out that you then make into more things with your hands? Yeah, like you it becomes like it becomes pieces? like a parts fabrication no, process. I don't like parts fabrication. If like that's mm. the thing is that like so when I did like robotics and like engineering stuff, my favorite aspect was fabrication specifically hand fabrication. Uh, we got a CNC uh, laser cutter at one point, and I basically refused to use the CNC laser cutter and would just always use our manual mill because I really love the experience of manual fabrication. Um, I, I, I like it a lot, which is why I have no interest in 3D printers, uh, despite being a weird little freak who likes making things. Fair enough. Uh, this sounds like it was written by someone who doesn't have a 3D printer. It sounds like it was written by somebody who like got a pitch about 3D printing because it's like it's slow. Yeah. It makes very small things. Well, it um, depends on the size of the Yeah, printer, hold on. Right? You can make some Maybe stuff. are you just an early adopter's bitter because you bought like a <laughs> shitty 3D printer? Cons- last I checked the consumer grade 3D printers are like fairly small. Like they can't mm. make you know, you can't make yourself. What about it. prosumer grade? I mean, sure. Would Just I like go a to workshop? your local makerspace and they'll have one there ready to go. <laughs> I mean, if I could print myself like furniture or something, you know what I mean? It's like, okay. Okay, well. Well, like, yeah, I might be tough. Uh, but but like, what about uh, you're getting into Warhammer? What about some uh, knockoff minis? Yeah. I, from what I understand, friend of Motherboard, former writer, Daniel Oberhaus had a 3D printer and 
he could just like never get it to do <laughs> the thing that he wanted because it's like it's very hard to because you're you're printing in 3D. You know what I mean? It's like so it has to be aligned perfectly, and like it's not that detailed of a. Mm-hmm. Object. You can actually get exceptionally detailed with like current 3D printers, even if it's like consumer grade. The note is that you have to sand them. That is the key mm. with like 3D printing broadly, is that what people don't do that they need to do is actually sand the objects down afterwards. I had this conversation with someone recently because um, uh, mentioned a minute ago, Chris Person stopped by my house and I was like, look at this fight stick I 3D printed. And I held it and I'm like, this is a real object and it like feels good to use. Um, and then he was like, yeah, it's 3D printed, but like you have to sand everything down and paint it properly. And actually, like, there's more steps beyond make the object suddenly exist through using a bunch of filament. And that is the thing that people get caught up on. And then they're like, why, is it, why does it feel bad to touch? I don't know, dog, you ever touch raw wood? So, so the, the, but the, what the person, what Waz is describing is, I'll just print a gift and put it in a bag. And it's like, it's not that. It's complicated. And you have yes. to, yeah, yeah. Was if you live this life, you have to confirm for us whether Please. or not. Like, are you the? Are you the? I'm gonna get you a gift. It's gonna be. It's gonna have that little special Was quality, which is it's a fresh 3D printed thing that you maybe didn't want, but yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, I, I, I don't think uh, in general I like searching for the exact thing I want rather than like what's weird is I would rather do that than like search through a bunch of like. Uh, like 3D printer molds basically for like you know a thing that could be passably like good Um, at the same time I do know that like the combination of like 3D printing and then like uh, additive manufacturing that goes sort of along with it where you can start like having multi-material stuff like fabbed that starts to get really interesting um, in in terms of stuff you could you could sort of possess Mm -hmm. and, and have um yeah, so that 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 is, you know, I guess wake me up when you can print some furniture or a car. <laughs> or if it's actually very simple. If it's actually like, oh, I'll download this plan and I'll push a button and it comes out. Right. It's like it's not it's not that. As far as I understand, it's not that yet. The entire games workshop like catalogs. Yeah. Burn. <laughs> show up you, you show up to a tournament, immediately get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment there's just no way it's detailed enough for the majesty of a Terminator armor, in my opinion. There's no way. Yeah, very true. Very true. Mm. Uh, All right. So I think we'll close the question bucket uh, there. Remember, you can send us all your questions at gamingadvice.com with the subject line, questions. Uh, That's a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. If you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us at Waypoint on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We are Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter, at Rob Zachney. Ricardo, where can people find you? At A underscore Ricardo underscore appears. Ren. At Ren or Raven. Emmanuel. At Emmanuel Myberg. Uh, you can also check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, Cam's review of Immortality uh, is up, so you can check that out on the site. And thanks to Waypoint Plus, we are spending most of Tuesday, uh, the day you're probably listening to this, testing some equipment and trying some new in-person setup stuff. Uh, we're going to be playing some some of F1 Manager uh, 2022. Uh, allegedly, like we are going to, we we have the keyboard. There is no allegedly; it will be happening. It's the the keyboard is ready, and <laughs> we're going to show off uh, the full power of a split keyboard. 
And are we gonna are you gonna bring in your Dvorak? Oh, I can just add a profile. I'm just add a profile. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. It's no, you should also bring you can, in your you keyboard. I'm gonna change, bring in my keyboard. You can and also we're all just gonna type change, on our keyboards. <laughs> just change the language in Windows. Yeah. But you should bring your keyboard. You want me to bring my keyboard? Yeah. Oh, but keyboard? Would this have the little Dvorak labeling? Like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think well, be, I mean, kind of. That'd be, so the left half of the keyboard is just uh, accents, but the right half of the keyboard is oh uh, properly lettered. <laughs> what? I know you bring it in, how to touch to type. What? I don't you need to look at the fucking letters. I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... Uh, for our Waypoint Plus listeners, we listen. Uh, next week we will be watching. That might still be redacted. You should go listen to my turn. You should listen to the episode we did on Prey. Yeah, uh, but that'll be out this Wednesday for the regular feed. It's Kato's turn on my turn, yeah. and they chose to make uh, let's call it a lateral move from Prey. I think, Far it's, lateral. I think like, it seemed pretty obvious to me. Oh that's, yeah, that's no. it's definitely lateral. What? It's it's <laughs> literally across. Uh, so if that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe not only do you get access to our premium feed but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here and of course now that gives you an ad free uh, version of the podcast that appear here on the main feed uh, and if you want to uh, go beyond just supporting the show at Waypoint Plus you can get some merch at waypointgeneralstore.com and uh, buy yourself things like pint glasses mugs uh, posters, etc. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we are calling time on this Tuesday. We will talk to you again on Friday. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.